Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Ido, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week we are honored to welcome Rabbi Samuel Klein, who is Director of Jewish Engagement for the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle. Previously, he's been the director of Reimagining Jewish Education through Art at Yeshiva University Museum in New York, and he's held several distinguished Jewish and interfaith leadership positions in both the U.S. and the U.K. He's also just completed a wonderful series of essays on Bereshit entitled Unwoven and Restitched, and he also happens to be my best friend. Rabbi Samuel, a huge welcome to you. We look forward to exploring Parshat Bo with you and to some engagement following your introduction. Simon, thank you so much. Uh, I think that's the first time I've heard you say that, actually, that I'm your best friend. That's very warming to hear. Revealed on Between the Lines for the first time. There we go. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for having me. A great pleasure. I think you wanted me to think of a few points of entry for this week's parasha. And one of them, I think, was the art of questioning itself. For me, it's very present throughout the parasha, the power and the centrality of questions and questioning in Jewish life. Why don't we start there? So actually, we can do a reverse read of the parasha and, and go right to the end. And at the end of the parasha, we read the injunction to respond to the question. And the question is the ultimate of all questions. It's a basic, simple question, mazot. When our children ask us, okay, so here you are sat around a table and you're recalling the exodus from Egypt. Tell me, why are we doing all this so many centuries later? Why is it that we are still so plugged in and so attached to this redemption narrative of exodus all these centuries later? What's it got to do with us? Mazot. One might think that's a brilliant question. In fact, Rashi is scathing. Rashi is scathing and says that actually the one who asked the question mazot is asking a very bad question, in fact, because they are sotem. They are blocking the possibility for responses. Mazot, what is this, is not a particularly deep question. Says Rashi of the one who asks the question. And we have it as the tum, the simple son. But actually, Rashi goes a little step further and says, this is a stupid son, or child, rather, I should say. Doesn't mince words, does Rashi, on this one. Rashi is very attached to asking good questions. And in fact, Rashi is essentially, he is the pinnacle for many of what it means to ask questions of the Peshat, the surface read of our text. The response that's given is, and you should say, And you should say, the response that we are supposed to give is, We're supposed to point towards something, a zeh. And Rashi continues as to other commentators, and maybe would like to have a back and forth with you about this, that we need to reenact memory. It's not enough that we recount history. We need to reenact, perform memory. It needs to be a performative act. 
And that is what the Seder is, a performative act. So you spark many things. And actually, just going back maybe to Rashi for a minute, you're saying that he's scathing of this question because it's not deep enough, it's not fundamental enough. What's the better question that Rashi wants us to ask? What Rashi would like us to ask, and actually, if you read further in other Mepharshim, for example, you look at Ramban, or you look at Hamek Dava, who is actually much, much later commentator, it is about personalizing the question. So if I direct a question at you, and I ask a very broad question, but I don't implicate you in the response, then I have missed the opportunity to draw a direct line between you and me in the art of questioning. Now, this is actually an article that I read by Denny Palmer Wolf, who speaks about the art of questioning and says that when we are confronted with a work of literature, a work of art, we stand in front of it or it's in our hands, and we have a number of responses to the text. And we can either read it as it is for itself, or we can read ourselves into it. And we can explore the seams or the interstitial moments when we, reading our lives or the material of our lives, see ourselves reflected in the work of art, or in fact, or the work of literature. And so when we are sat around the table, gather around the table, and we hold up the matzah, for example, and we hold it aloft and we say, this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in Egypt. It's not enough for Rambam, for Maimonides, that we hold it up, but we have to implicate ourselves in it. Chayav adam leharot et atzmo ki atzmo yatsav mitzrayim. The art of questioning is so performative that we need to comport ourselves, to consider ourselves, as if we ourselves left Egypt. Otherwise, for Rambam, there's no point in doing this at all. If we can't draw a through line between what happened in Egypt thousands of years ago, so to speak, and what is happening in our lives right now, the act of the Seder is essentially meaningless. The meaningfulness of that act is when we can invest our lives, read our lives, into this performance. So that's why Rashi, well, Rashi is supposedly scathing because there was no investment of self in that question. Obviously, as a people, we have read this over many generations and it has maybe meant different things at different points. I wonder really what you think the right questions to ask of it today are as opposed to maybe what Rashi had in mind a thousand or so years ago? Well, one of them is, how can I remember what did not happen to me? How can I actually remember something that didn't occur to me in my life? And I refer to the chief rabbis Haggadah, um, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, I love her shalom, who one of his essays, History and Memory, really goes hammer and tongs with Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, who thoughtfully thinks about, renders, uh, history is memory. So he's one of the preeminent historians who in 1980 actually delivered a series of lectures at the Strom Center for Jewish Studies in Seattle, as it was. So the series of lectures that became Zachar, his book on Jewish memory, he argues that there is no such thing as Jewish history per se, which is quite a bold statement to make, or that rather that Jewish life and law was not that interested in recounting facts, rather was about framing experiences. His famous line is that memory is treacherous and dangerous, and that often we make mistakes in the facts. We don't recall accurately or correctly. And therefore, why bother? Rather, what we should do is not try to go granular 
but go broad. And I'm recalling Rabbi Dr. Rafi Zaram's comment, actually, about the Seder. I remember when I was a youngster, I was uh, at a sixth form center in NSJS, which used to be called the sixth form center, on Sunday mornings. And there was Rafi, as Rafi does, just drawing us in with his classes. This was in Hendon in London. He said, imagine the Seder like many, many spotlights across history. Each spotlight is a family. Spotlight having its Seder across historical time. And Literally, one spot next to the other is a family in 1540, a family in 1836, a family in 1922, and so on. Just imagine all these families in real time having the Seder experience in this enormous cavernous space full of spotlights. In one fell swoop, he landed it for us, which is to say, when we are engaging in the art of questioning, we're actually doing so in an ahistorical continuum. We're not concerned necessarily with who got it right. What is the right story? The question is, can this be our story? Can this become our story? That is why Rabbi Sachs believes that memory is so important to identity. That he argues with Yoshalmi that memory is not only treacherous and therefore we should be concerned with it. We shouldn't concern ourselves with getting it right. We should concern ourselves with how it impacts us, with how the story impacts us. And I find that very powerful, very powerful indeed. Many years ago, another lifetime, when we were both at university together, I had a brief conversation with the late Rabbi Lord Sachs on Zachor over a lunch. It brings to mind actually another incident at university, and I'm fond of quoting this, on having seen outside a church in Cambridge the following line. You might have heard this from me before, which is that unanswered questions are better than unquestioned answers. We're great at asking questions. We're in a state of not needing answers, or at least having the questions like out there. How can we adjust ourselves to live in that state of mind? I do recall you saying that, actually. I'm, I'm gratified that you've been so consistent. It's amazing to me how, actually, over the years, and this conversation has been going, I think, 20 years, that some things just burn brightly. I think this is also Rilke's comment in Letters to a Young Poet, to live the questions now. Rainer Marilke writes beautifully and lyrically, but one of the most powerful passages from Letters to a Young Poet is when he says, let live the questions now. Do not try to find the answers themselves. Actually live the questions. And that phrase is one that is almost a motif for the act of Haggadah, living the questions. You asked me about art because for me, art is often, and particularly art in a museum context, is, is often a way of, of unpacking, for me, some of these motifs in Torah. And I find that reading Torah can also be a curatorial practice of reading works of art against works of literature, against the text of the Torah itself. You'll remember this. Mark Quinn, one of the YBAs, the Young British Artists, who in that very famous Charles Saatchi exhibition, Sensation, came out with Self in 1991, which was the bloodhead or the bloody head, where he froze eight pints of his own blood. Eventually it was in silicon, but initially it wasn't. And essentially what you have there, if you go to the National Portrait Gallery now, you find his head is there as one of the portraits. And this was an ongoing artwork. It turns out that he actually intended to reproduce that every five years and has done actually since 1991. And self in the National Portrait Gallery is the 2006 version. And look in the parasha this week and you see the blood motif literally threaded through. You work backwards, you have the blood on the mashkof on the doorposts that represents 
the faith that the Israelites are supposed to have at that time in the actions being taken on their behalf by Moses, by the divine hand, and they slaughter the ram and put its blood on the doorposts, which was an act of faith because the ram representing one of the godheads of Egypt would have put them in danger. The blood also almost transubstantiates into a mezuzah, which like the phylacteles or the totafot, are supposed to act as a zikaron, as a remembrance of faith forever after. And the mezuzah is in fact one of those physical, material representations or symbols of faith, which a Jewish household is supposed to have on the doorpost to this day. And that's supposed to be the blood. And then you have this weird and uncanny passage of the Chatan Damim, when Moses is, Moshe is going towards Egypt and hasn't yet arrived. And his son, Gershon, has not had a bris, has not had circumcision yet. And this appears to be this force, this demonic force that is going to threaten his life. And Zipporah immediately rushes and circumcises her son, the only instance of a woman circumcising her son anywhere in Jewish literature. And this is what saves his life. And then, you know, you go back, of course, to the blood in the Nile. Blood is nefesh. It is the source of the soul in ancient Jewish law, L-O-R-E. And it is, in fact, the source of the soul also in ancient Egyptian law. It is where the nefesh is. It is where the life force is. The brain, no one was that interested in the brain. They were interested in blood that circulated around and apparently carried all of the memories. And therefore, it makes sense that that got drawn into the collective memory of Israel, that the specific blood of a person, the blood that represents faith, represents covenant, becomes the blood that gets mapped into our collective memory. That Mark Quinn's self, for me, looking at self and the way that he has created this artwork out of himself that could just dissolve should you turn off the refrigerator that keeps it there. And I think, in fact, it almost did dissolve once upon a time when Angela Lawson, I think, and Saatchi, who were then at the time married, had, uh, it's in The Independent, you, you, you can look it up, you can fact check me. It, it almost it almost went into a muddy puddle because the electricians turned off the electricity <laughs> and the whole thing apparently almost melted. So I find that that is a representation for me of just like the materiality of memory, of a memory of a person and memory of a people. Going back to Rashi and his imploring us to embody the question at the deepest level, it feels like the way you speak about art is an expression of exactly that. And yet, obviously, and this is one of your many subjects of expertise, but obviously, as a people, we haven't often done that. We've been more literary than creative in a truly artistic sense. And yet the examples you point to perhaps points to a hope for greater expression. And I wonder if you agree with that and what kind of potential you see for the flourishing of art. Looking back and forward, we have not been a people. And this is, uh, if you read Carmen Bland's The Artless Jew or many, many other books that speak to this, and, and, and that could be a subject of many conversations, is Artless Jew, that Jews did not have uh, specifically an artistic culture per se. The, the art being spoken of here is a narrative art. And Aviva Zornberg has a beautiful essay here on Parashat Bo, where she talks about the art of narrative. And I think that ours is a narrative art rather than a figurative art. And what are we working with here? We're working with images through retelling, through storytelling. It is what we do as a people. We tell stories and retell stories. Ours is an interpretive tradition. 
And so when thinking of the phrase, the artless Jew, or the idea of art in Jewish life, I think of narrative art, narrative practice. I think of the great traditions of the Magid, of the one who went from town to town, shtetl to shtetl, and retold stories. One of the famous ones is Magid of Mezrich, actually. The Magid of Mezrich is that figure that looms large in being one of the heirs to the Baal Shem Tov, who speaks of stories, not as fables and children's time, more children's book corner. Actually, there is this very powerful container that is made when telling a story as an art form. And nowadays you have storyteller artists like Panina Shram, for example, who for many, many years has been collecting and disseminating stories and retelling stories from early modern Jewish life in ways which have captivated countless audiences. Uh, Yehuda Kurtzer in his book Shuva is another one who has pointed to how storytelling is taken very seriously indeed in Jewish life. Almost the politics of memory, who gets to tell the story and how is a story told? So I think that actually there is a very rich culture of storytelling and interpreting in Jewish life. And that is where likely our art form is going to be deepened over the years to, to come as we continually pass a story from one generation to the other. I don't see Jewish art as being figurative. I see it as being narrative. I wonder, having just completed, as I mentioned in the introduction, your wonderful essays on Bereshit, unwoven and restitched, how the, how the narrative art of Exodus is very different from that of Bereshit and what kind of conclusions we might draw from that in what direction does that lead us? The narrative art of Bereshit appears to be woven around, use the phrase, it is woven as a tapestry around personalities, where you have Joseph, for example, who is Yosef, is him and, and King David have the longest narrative arcs of any you know, Jewish personalities. And the Joseph cycle, as it's called, is one of the longest narratives, continuing narratives from, from early infancy all the way through to his death. It really focuses in both broad, the lens is broad and wide, and also very granular indeed. And you look at Shemot, and Shemot starts as it means to continue. It's less focused, even though we have Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, the figure of, of Moshe, looming large at the beginning. It's less about individuals than it is of a people. Bereshit, literally beginnings, is, again, to quote Aviva Zornberg, it is the murmuring deep, it is the hammam of the abyss, the watery abysses of the origin stories of our people in, in a particular family, whereas Shemot is the origin stories of our people as a people itself. And the difference between them is that we are less concerned with individual voices and individual stories than we are concerned with much broader narrative themes, revelation, for example, liberation, uh, redemption, Essentially, the Bereshit stories fold in to Shemot in that they are precursor. They allow us to understand why these stories should be so important to us. For ultimately, we ourselves, I'm going to quote Margaret Thatcher here, but Margaret Thatcher said, there is no such thing as society. There are only individuals and families. I think, wasn't that, wasn't that a famous line from Margaret Thatcher? Has quoted Margaret Thatcher on Between the Lines podcast. So that's another first. Uh, but yes, that, that, that's right. I believe from I can't remember. I can't 80, remember 86, 86, maybe 87, 87 election, something like that. 
But the, the great, you know, the late Lord Jacobowitz, and the, re- the reason I remember that is because Rabbi Jacobowitz, I believe, gave a Pesach Shi'ur, where he quoted that one, I think. And please don't fact check me on that. But I believe that's why I remember it, because he said how important it is that we focus on our family narratives. And let's not worry about getting those broader themes right. So actually, let's worry about how we transfer the story to our children. Don't worry about Yenem, which is the Yiddish phrase for others. Don't worry about yourself. Worry about the way that you are caretaking the narrative of redemption and liberation for the next generation. And so I would say Bereshit is pivotal. It's necessary for that work. And that is why the Torah doesn't begin Hachodesh Hazelachem Rosh Chadashim. It's the ultimate question. We can conclude with a question, which is why does the Torah not begin Hachodesh Hazelachem Rosh Chadashim? Why do we need all of Bereshit? Not as a filler, because the curatorial act of question finding in life begins with a person asking why. And therefore, we need to locate the first person who asked why, Adam, whether that was the first human being or the first person who asked the question why, and then go to Abraham, who was the first question who noticed the importance of the why, and proceed from there. The noticing deeply in the world is so important to Jewish thought that that is why we have to have the whole of creation narrated before we get to the Exodus. That is the traditional answer. Rabbi Samuel, thank you so much for your wonderful narrative and your questions. I hope that Rashi would be, I'm sure he would be very happy with your questions. And thank you also for already planting the seeds for Pesach coming up. You've given us many questions that we can take to our Seder tables in a few months' time. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to welcoming you back again. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about the exciting content that we have on our mothership, jewishquest.org. We look forward to meeting again next week.